This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of September 19th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. You may recall that in 2013, the Indiana legislature created a path for artisan distillers to produce and sell spirits to the public by the glass, bottle, or case. The hope was to start a micro-distilling industry in Indiana, and one of the first businesses to take the leap was called Hotel Tango Distillery. It was co-founded by husband and wife attorneys Travis and Hillary Barnes. With the help of a handful of investors, they opened a production facility and tasting room in an early 20th century carriage house in the Fletcher Place neighborhood. It very much was a mom-and-pop operation, and it still is. Travis is the CEO, and Hillary is the chief legal officer. But in eight years, it has grown to three tasting rooms in Indiana, and retail sales in liquor stores, supermarkets, wine shops, and bars in 25 states, and on 120 military bases around the world. In 2021, Hotel Tango was honored by IBJ in our annual Fast 25 publication, charting the growth of the fastest growing companies in central Indiana. It reported revenue of $4.3 million in 2020, a 127% increase from its revenue in 2018. Now, for 2022, Travis Barnes expects total sales of about $6 million. Now, if you detect a hint of military culture in the name Hotel Tango, not to mention its deal with U.S. military commissaries, you get a gold star. Travis is a former Marine who served in the elite Special Operations Reconnaissance Force. He enlisted right after 9-11, and it turned out to be a life-changing experience, going well beyond some of the serious injuries that he suffered in Iraq. A lot of what he learned in the military is encoded in the values and processes of Hotel Tango. The concept of discipline is central to the Marine Corps identity, and it also has become a central tenet of the Hotel Tango brand. Travis Barnes is our guest this week to talk about Hotel Tango's creation, its rocketing sales, and how one of the state's first micro distilleries could establish such a big footprint in less than a decade. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Travis Barnes, co-founder and CEO of Hotel Tango Distillery. Thank you for making time today. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So you opened uh, the first Hotel Tango micro distillery and tasting room in 2014 in the Fletcher Place neighborhood, correct? Yes, sir. We were uh, one of the first four in the state to open since Prohibition. It seems like a lot has happened in eight years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Were you aiming for this kind of growth at the beginning? Did you have any grand ambition or did ambition maybe come more in stages? Yeah, I think it feels, uh, it was definitely always uh, part of the plan to grow. Um, looking back now, it feels, you know, uh, two-sided on some days. I feel like we've come such a long way. And, you know, to go back to just the one tasting room and to now where we're at, we were distributed in 25 states. We're in 120 military bases. We're in six countries with the United States Navy. Uh, sometimes it feels like we haven't uh, grown fast enough almost. Like, uh, 
we, we should have gotten farther at this point. Wow, that's super interesting. I would think that eight years would not would just go by in a flash. Some days, I think mm-hmm. that you know the years go by quick, the days go by slow sometimes. So it's you know always a grind, but when you look back, it always seems to to have gone by pretty quick. So let's take stock of your operations. You meant you mentioned a few things we'll touch on in a second, but there are three tasting rooms. There's the original Fletcher Place. There's one that opened at about the same time in Fort Wayne. Is that right? Fort Wayne opened in 2017, a couple years later, and then our place in Zionsville opened in 2021. So 2021, that was a pretty hairy time to be opening any kind of retail style business. How are things going right now? Going great. It's been uh, very well received. Zionsville has been a, a great uh, town for us to open up in. But yeah, it's uh, we always thought that the tasting rooms were a great um, way for us to expand our presence. Um, and it gives a nice halo effect, I think, for our brand. Uh, it allows people to come in and experience both our product through our cocktails and through samplings of just the products by themselves. Now, I don't know anything about spirits because I'm the world's biggest lightweight. My wife is a public high school teacher, so she drinks a little bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I just mean a little bit. And so just last night, I am looking for a juice box for our six-year-old's school lunch. And I make the connection. There is a bottle of Hotel Tango Lemoncello in one of our kitchen cabinets. And I'm like, wait a second. That's the guy I'm interviewing. Can you give me a sense of the range of products you have now? So right now, we have 10 products um, that were all born out of our tasting room. So we, um, under the Indiana law... We were only allowed to sell what we were producing in our uh, distillery. So that really made it a focus for us to be able to give folks a wide range within kind of the overall spectrum of the cocktail world. So we knew that we had to expand just beyond whiskey to fulfill those that portfolio. So we make a vodka, a rum, a gin, a lemoncello, an orange cello, uh, a cherry liqueur. We have a high rye whiskey, a weeded bourbon, a reserve bourbon. And now our newest product is our Schmallow, which is a toasted marshmallow bourbon. <laughs> okay. How did you get the toasted marshmallow taste in the bourbon? So originally, this was born out of a cocktail that was being made with infused bourbon and marshmallows in our in our tasting room. And uh, it was one of our best sellers. And our customers said, man, this is terrific. We'd like to just take this home in a bottle. So kind of uh, as all good, uh, I think, R&D goes, we were able to go through and uh, refine our process and figure out a way to take it from a cocktail to a bottle. So we start with a bourbon base and then we use artificial natural flavorings uh, to produce this toasted marshmallow flavored bourbon. How do do you R&D that? You guys did it all yourself? Yes, sir. That's incredible. So again, um, we have a great team both on the bartending side and in our distilling side. And we really, they have a... uh, kind of a open door policy on where innovation happens. So what we hear from customers is generally whether or not it's, um, you know, a very uh, avant-garde product or more mainstream. This was, again, a cocktail that was, uh, it was an old-fashioned cocktail, but it was made with marshmallows and a graham cracker crust uh, rim. And uh, folks just had a great uh, reception to it and really wanted to have more of it. So we followed their lead, listened to our customer and uh, put it into a bottle. Maybe you, you just said this before and I just didn't process it right, but it would seem like the the tasting rooms now in part would almost serve as like a proof of concept area where you get an idea, 
you brew it and then you try it on at your customers before you try to put it in retail. Absolutely. That's um, 100% accurate. We listen to what our folks say um, before we would ever take anything out into the distribution market. It really is born out of those tasting rooms and out of those cocktails. And you mentioned before um, how you were like the fourth distillery in Indiana since Prohibition ended. Is that correct? So when the Indiana law opened up back in 2014, we were one of four in the state that were able to get our license initially uh, to be able to open up as an artisan. That's the keyword uh, distillery, which means we were able to produce on site and sell directly to customers without going through the three-tier system through a distributor. So we could produce on site, sell directly to customers. Right. And state law had just, just then loosened up. I mean, I think as you're referring to yes. about being able to to make and sell your own spirits. Yes. The beer has been available for, you know, 20 plus years. And this was the first time that they allowed spirits. And you just happened to have been sort of in that mind space at the right time. Yeah. We'd been watching the law for a few years. It had actually gone through the Indiana legislature for, I, I believe, two or three times before it finally passed. So we were kind of hedging our bets that, okay, this is going to be the year we should go after our licensing federal on the federal side first, because that was a big key that in order to get your Indiana license, you first had to have your federal license. So we went and got that first. And then the Indiana license was uh, basically a rubber stamp. There were a few more uh, processes we had to go through, but essentially that was the big piece that we had to get our, our you know, the, the big okay from the feds. Okay. So you mentioned this before, but how many... Uh, states are your products available? So currently we're sold in 25 states across the United States, 120 military bases, and we're in six countries through the United States Navy. And the different kinds of places where I could find uh, your product, be grocery stores, liquor stores? Uh, yeah, everywhere from you know Walmart, Kroger, Meyer, Publix, Costco, uh, Rite Aid. You know, we're, we've really targeted kind of the big box stores across the U.S., Twins, Total Wine, those sorts of things. And then here locally, Crown, Big Red, uh, are obviously uh, big supporters of ours. So um, it's been great. So on one hand, I think of you guys as a mom and pop business. You literally are a mom and pop. Yes. But I mean, that is a, that's a pretty big reach. Uh, and I think you alluded to this before, you really needed a distributor to do that. Absolutely. So part of the three-tier system in every state, it's a little bit different, but uh, there's suppliers like us, there's distributors such as an RNDC or a Southern Wine and Spirits or Johnson Brothers, and then the retailer side. So you have to go through each one before you get to an actual customer at the end of the day. Okay. And your distributor? So we have a few, oh, okay. uh, but our, our main are, are, is uh, RNDC here in Indiana. Oh, it's Indiana-based? Yes. Okay. Because I know that there are really big national distributors that have, I mean, big relationships with big spirit makers. Are those the kind of places that would be interested in you, or does it really help to have an Indiana-based distributor? So RNDC is one of the biggest uh, in the United States. Uh, I believe they're the second largest after Southern Wine and uh, Spirits. And so, yes, it, it's huge. We're in, I think, 10, to 10 or 11 states with RNDC right now. And how do you get on a military base? In a, in a commissary in a military base. You you ask really nicely. <laughs> uh, actually, it's a very interesting process. Uh, there's one buyer per branch uh, in each of the military branches uh, that are all based around the United States. And they they make the, the choice twice a year on what products to bring in and shelve in those particular stores. So we knocked on a, a ton of doors. We lobbied our legislatures congressmen and senators to help kind of make those introductions and get us in front of those people. Because uh, at the end of the day, uh, they don't want to bring in anything that might be too big for us. 
initially. So that was part of the concern that they wanted to make sure we had enough product to be able to service uh, the United States Navy or the Army or the Air Force. So uh, once we got in front of them, uh, we were able to get into a couple bases and then from there grow and expand uh, to where we're at today. Did it help that you had authentic connection to the armed services? It definitely helped get our foot in the door, but it, I would say that it, it wasn't the, the main reason. I think that it was sophistication and our ability to work through the matrix and the administrative processes that really sold us on our ability to get into the military. Beyond that, um, I think that we spoke the language. That helped a lot The beyond the yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir part that we were able to get on bases to do tastings, to do samplings, to support the product once we got on base, which a lot of other brands just don't do or don't know how to do. Um, so that was a huge advantage for us. So last year, how many barrels of product did you produce? Last year, we did 2,000 barrels that we produced. How much do you think it'll be this year? Somewhere around 3,000. Oh, that's huge. Why the Why so much growth? So with bourbon, we've always got to look out two, four, and six years as we want to grow into our product. Um, so we're always kind of using a little bit of Kentucky windage to look over the horizon to shoot at. And we know that we're our, our goal is to continue to grow at um, somewhere between 50 and 100% for the next several years. And that's where we've got to continue to making it out more and more every year. So we've got to double down on brown, as we like to say. <laughs> so that is to produce, continue to produce the product because it needs to age. Correct. So what we we make this year, those 3,000 barrels will sit in a barn somewhere for at least two years, some of it four years and some of it six years before it will ever get into a bottle. Gotcha. So production isn't the same thing as sales. Correct. We need patience both uh, on the time to make the product, to let it sit, and on the money because we won't re recollect that for several years. Where are your production facilities? So we produce here in Indiana and then we contract to still with some folks out of Ohio. Oh, how does that work? So uh, a lot of folks use a contract distilling as a means to when their production has reached its capacity. So our recipe, their equipment, and essentially we've made some very good friends over there that have unlimited capacity, uh, but they can use our corn, our wheat, our barley, uh, and to our specifications and produce over there. And then we bring the barrels here to sit in Indiana. So whatever capacity you had in Indiana, you had maxed out. Correct. So you needed some more production. Correct. Okay. So between here, is there, did I hear this correctly? There's a somebody on 16th street or 10th street. So that's where our main production facility is yeah. located up. Where is that? On 16th Street in the Monon, Tinker okay. Building. Oh, the Tinker Building. Yep. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, my son plays soccer. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Just right next door. Yep. So eight years after founding the first micro distillery and tasting room, I'm sure you have challenges now that you just could not have imagined eight years ago. What is the biggest thing you're worried about right now? Really, I would say where and how we grow. I think that we've done a lot of hunting um, out across those 25 states. And I think that we're shifting into more farming to harvest a little bit more growth out of each of those markets to make them more mature. Um, oh, farming, like that's a sales term. <laughs> correct. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So yes. That's okay. Uh, term of art. Um, we're talking about corn and mash and so right. we're talking about farming. So instead of expanding, you know, we, we've, we've made a decision to not necessarily go out and expand to California yet. Um, as, and the reason being is, it would take uh, an, a ton of capital to go out there and really make a mark in a that big of a market, right? So instead, I think that we can focus back in on growing in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, 
Kentucky to really expand in those markets. I don't think that we've necessarily even scratched the surface on penetrating those markets yet. So is that your job at the at the home offices of Hotel Tango to find more people uh, to buy your stuff or is the distributor help you at all? Both, I would say. It's, it's a com- combined effort. That's part of the relationship, the partnership that they really need to get it onto the shelves and then we've got to get it off the shelves, so to speak. So I've got to go out and convince folks to pick Hotel Tango instead of Jack Daniels. Mm-hmm. And so in those markets also, you need to worry about advertising to the extent that you can. And That's a huge part of it. And that's yeah. a very competitive part of it as well, mm-hmm. an expensive part of it. And so at some point, I'm, I'm guessing they didn't teach advertising and recon? No. In, in the Marines. So at some point, you get to the point where you're big enough, you need a lot more brain power in the office. Was, was, was there a point in which you're like, man, we really need to grow this executive team? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've got a wonderful uh, young group of executives that uh, have helped grow this company. Our our executive team is wonderful in-house, but we've used um, Ditto Marketing as our PR firm that has done a great job of kind of getting the word out there uh, organically and naturally for us. And also YNL has been a big uh, part of helping design some of our uh, bottles and shelf talkers and things like that. And yeah, both of those Indiana, Indianapolis firms. Indianapolis. They're great, great, great marketing firms. I don't know if you have a whiteboard, but what what would be the the couple of things that you'd want to make sure you get done in the next six months or so? Really understanding, I think, what our goals are for next year. So everything in our world is uh, at least six months out. So if we've, you know, if we didn't plan for Christmas uh, POS, uh, point of sale stuff uh, in June, then it's already too late. So we're already looking uh, for Valentine's Day next year. We're looking toward... Uh, Memorial Day for Pride Month next year. So we're always kind of looking out into where, again, where, where we can penetrate the market and how we can serve it better. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and my conversation with Travis Barnes, co-founder and CEO of Hotel Tango Distillery. So I want to go back a little bit before the founding of the company because your military service is literally encoded into the name of the company, but also in its values and its processes. So you grew up in Albion. Yes, sir. In the north. Eastern Indiana. You were enrolled in Indiana University, Purdue University, Fort Wayne. I think now the now the Mastodons, if I'm not. No Dons, right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you were enrolled there during 9-11. Yes. And you felt a call to duty and joined the Marines. And then eventually the Elite Special Operations Reconnaissance Force. And I gather uh, just some things that we've written about you before here at IBJ. You found yourself in a way in the Marines, or am I kind of over- Overgeneralizing. No, I absolutely think that's hundred uh, percent correct. I, you know, in in the infantry, you have a lot of time to uh, sit and think about what you want to do when you get out and you're done with your service. And I did a lot of that, and didn't necessarily think that distilling was going to be the end goal, but I knew that I wanted to do something to help um, one 
serve uh, back to the military, which I think we do with our company, but also incorporate the skills that I learned while I was in the military into whatever I was doing after it. You know, I think that you get to see the world through a, a different set of lenses while you're in the military, especially in a combat zone. And then when you come back home, yeah, you really get to appreciate the things that you did learn uh, while you were there. So I'm I'm hoping to take those lessons uh, and skill sets that I learned there and bring them forward into what I do now. I mentioned before we started the interview that I have a cousin who also was in recon. And for him, I mean, it was really a life-changing event because I think it helped give him focus and it gave him a real appreciation for discipline and process. Was that your experience as well? Oh, 100%. I, I think that uh, you know, it, it just teaches you to appreciate the small details, uh, to incorporate those into your daily systems, your daily life, uh, you know, from getting out of bed and making your bed to uh, how you treat other people, how you see the world. It really gives you a different look, a different set of lenses to look through. So how long did you serve and where did you serve? So I ended up serving about four and a half years. Most of my time was spent in Iraq. I did three tours. Each one, each tour was about nine months. And I did the initial push into Baghdad and then came back for uh, two follow-on tours in Fallujah and Ramadi. And during your service, you encountered several IEDs and were very seriously injured. Can you tell us a little bit about those injuries and whether you have any kind of lingering issues from those? So, yeah, I was uh, hit by several IEDs um, and during my really my second and third tour. And then uh, PTSD and traumatic brain injury were the ultimate results of those and that still have lingering effects, I would say. But, you know, I, I manage and uh, have worked through a lot of those issues and got a great family and uh, wife that have helped uh, deal with a lot of those. But, yeah. After you get hit by the first IED, I would assume they just get to go home. <laughs> Is that not the... That's now, not the case. Motrin and water. You're joking. No. Get get back out there. Get back on the horse. Hurry up. So it just kept happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yep. I probably I probably should do this now before I forget. Thank you uh, oh, for your service. No, no, I that, appreciate it. Again, that's amazing. I'm 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 I always feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the room. Um proud of my service and uh very, very happy to be back home and you know, now with my wife and daughters, it's uh I've living the dream, man. Like I'm truly, you're looking at the American dream right now. Uh, pardon me for probing just a little bit, but, but do they diagnose you with a traumatic brain injury there? Or is that something you find out about after you leave the service? After. Um, so went through a uh, whole diagnostics of test, MRIs, brain scans, and they found uh, lesions essentially on, on my brain. And uh, that's what how they diagnosed it. So you had an honorable discharge? Uh, yes. Returned to civ civilian life? and entered Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law here in Indianapolis. And you met your wife, Hillary. Can you tell us just kind of how you guys met? Uh, it was our first class, first semester. Um, she couldn't keep her hands off me. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I think uh, we, we found out that we were both we were both pilots and that that was kind of our initial interest. And that's how we kind of actually came up with the name Hotel Tango was the military fanatic alphabet and how we use those uh, within flying. And then her name is Hillary. My name is Travis. And so it was HT Hotel Tango. So that's how we, we got there. So how was it that you got then involved in making spirits? Were you a hobbyist? 
Did you answer an ad in a comic book? How do you do that? I think it started um, while we were in law school, while we were paying attention to the what was happening in the legislature that I found an interest in it. Um, I'd been brewing beer for a while and um, kind of got the itch and thought, well, this is a pretty big opportunity that I see coming and we should take a shot at it and really took it from hobby status to career status. Did you at some point decide, okay, I'm in law school, but I really don't want to be a lawyer? Yeah, I think that I realized that pretty pretty early on in the process that that um, I enjoyed law school, loved every minute of it, but didn't necessarily want to be a, I would say, you know, traditional lawyer, go in and write memos and briefs and do yeah. that kind of thing. Billable office hours, right. stay late, No, whatever it is. I wanted to be a little bit more free range, I guess. And so you decided you're going to start experimenting. Yes, sir. And you did. How do you, how do you experiment with that at home? I don't know if I want to. <laughs> Oh, is it dangerous? <laughs> Did you break some municipal laws? Uh, at the time, it was pretty loose. I, I think that um, it, it was more of just uh, conceptual, I think, that we could do it um, until we were actually up and running. And that was part of it that, you know, for the, the federal licenses, you essentially have to be a distillery without operating. So that was a big key. If you had to have the equipment, you had to have the building, the zoning, the license, or the, excuse me, the insurance. Uh, you had to have everything in place to be a distillery, but without turning on any of the equipment, which was extremely challenging, you know, to find funding and get folks on board to to be a part of, especially as we were one of the first in the state to do it in 70 years. So we reported, I think, uh, when you still were planning on opening the first location that you uh, you plan to invest about $400,000 to get the Fletcher Place project off the ground. Is that about how much you ended up investing? I think we did it with less than that. I think we did it with actually around 200000 and was that all your money or did you have loans or investors or both? No. So we went out and found, um, we, we, first we went to every, uh, you know, bank in town and was told no. Mm. <laughs> first, oh, for, there you you're go. too young, <laughs> no experience. First time the laws changed. So, uh, then we, we, um, actually found four, uh, we went to a, a whiskey tasting here at the university club and we found there was a, you know, group of, uh, gentlemen there that I had no idea who they were and, it really turned into a, an episode of Shark Tank. So I went in there and I was given 10 minutes to make my pitch. And I had four guys that called me the next morning and said, we'd love to be a part of this. That's incredible. Was that put together with people understanding that, you know, this would be, I mean, due to the change in legislation, that this would be something. Yeah. So I kind of laid out right what, yeah. So I, I laid out kind of what uh, the landscape was, uh, where we had come. We had just gotten our license from the feds. We were just about to get our license from the state. So we were a little bit along. We had some product, we had our still. Uh, so I think we were, uh, we knew just enough to be dangerous at that point. And they, they bought in and said, yeah, let's do this. And those four guys are still part of the company, still investors. Um, two of them are on my board. So they're, they've been, they're pillars in Indianapolis. They're wonderful people. They've been great to me and now friends and part of the family. So on the bottle, I don't know if it says this on Shmalo or not, but I think it typically says distilled with discipline. Yep. So I'm kind of going back to the, the military uh, theme again. What, what does that mean? What does that look like to you? Yeah, I think it's the processes, the way we select, we do everything from the way we select the grain, the way that we actually run the recipe, that we run the still, that we dump the barrels, that we fill the bottles, that we label the bottles, that we how we sell, how we treat one another within the company. I mean, it's uh, all encompassing. When we say distilled with discipline, it really means 
the whole company, not just what's in the bottle or on the label, but it's really kind of an ethos that runs through every part of what we do in the company, how we make the cocktails. You seem like a really laid back guy. You don't seem like the great Santini, but I guess I'm struggling with my idea of what discipline is. Um, you can be laid back and disciplined at the same time. Yeah, I think that discipline comes in many forms. I think that that's you know something I learned while I was at Recon that, that you know you don't have to be the hard charging guy out front all the time to be a a disciplined leader. I think that you can be a little bit more reserved and still uh, have great leadership aspects or, uh, attributes and still have a very disciplined mindset. And I think that that's uh, what we try to come off as is you can be disciplined without being rigid so to speak, that you can have a fun side and still be disciplined. And, and I think that that comes through with how we operate our company. Now, I know at the beginning you were interested in hiring uh, military veterans. Um, was that something that, that you're able to do? Absolutely. Uh, so I believe we've got five or six on staff at this point, maybe a couple more. But yeah, it's, it's um, I will say, a little bit harder than what I initially thought, especially within kind of how the company's grown and where we've grown. Uh, we just entered the Skill Bridge program to bring on a couple veterans that are getting out of military and transitioning over to the civilian side. So we're always looking. Uh, that's definitely uh, a gold star on your resume if you're applying at Hotel Tango, hmm. for sure. But yeah. Okay. How many uh, full-time and part-time employees do you have now total? Uh, I believe we're at 50 full-time and we've probably got another 20, 25 part-time around the country that do tastings and kind of our brand ambassadors for us on military bases. A lot of uh, military spouses that do that for us. So I take it the sales have been uh, increasing so far this year. And, and that, in fact, is the plan is to continue to grow sales. Can you give me a sense of how? So yeah, we're up about 45% this year. And I think that's somewhere we'll shake out by the end of January. So 45% in terms of like, case case volume. So, uh, so all of our pro all of our products, uh, our vodka, our gin, our vodka, our rum, our bourbon, all of those those cases that go out through distribution, we're selling forty five percent more than we did last year. So, how many cases would that be by the end of the year? So, we're shooting for around thirty six thousand this year. Okay, the cases and forgive me, I am a, a dunce when it comes to this kind of thing. No. What is in a case? Uh, six six bottles. Six bottles. Yes. Okay. In terms of a dollar value for sales, like you guys were in our Fast 25 list of the fastest growing companies in, Indi in the Indianapolis area last year. And I believe the figure, I think, was $4.3 million wise in sales. Do you have a sense of what it's going to be this year? So I think we're uh, headed for somewhere around the $6 million mark this year, total sales. That includes both our distribution and tasting rooms, which was included in that last year. Okay. So that is both what I would find in retail and also when I go and get my gin and cucumber Correct. cocktail. Yes, sir. <laughs> then at Fletcher Place. Okay. Now, in 2019, you received, I know this because we wrote about it, $2 million from new investors. Uh, and I think that was intended to establish and strengthen the retail presence. Uh, have there, has there been any major fundraisers since then? Not yet, uh, but we're always looking to uh, expand and grow the company. So we'll at some point probably be looking for more funds to grow. Are you guys big enough at this point that you would be an acquisition target? Well, you'd have to ask the acquirers that, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, Maybe the better question is, have you been asked? Uh, we have been approached by some folks, um, but we're, you know, I think still in high growth mode. I think that we've still got a little bit of runway that we'd like to get to. Um, I, I'll just say it like this. My goal is to grow. I mean, I want to continue to expand. Uh, if I could be the first distillery on Mars, I would be. So that's where my head is at. So as far as you're concerned, you could go, you do this for another 25, 
this could be your job for the rest of your life and you'd be happy. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is, uh, you know, an unexpected uh, career path that um, I didn't necessarily know uh, how long the ride would be when I got into it, but it's uh, become a passion. Uh, it's it's so fun to come into work every day. I love what I get to do. I love the people that I get to work around. Uh, I love the product that we get to make. It's, you know, I can't think of, uh, if anything keeps me up at night, it's it's what would I do after this? Oh, what would you do after this? I don't know, be a carpenter or something, I guess, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, so when you guys have board meetings, your investors are not saying, you know, when are we going to get our money back? They're, everybody's happy with the way Don't give them going. any ideas. I will not. <laughs> I'm no. sure it never occurred to them. <laughs> no, not yet. I think that everybody's enjoying the ride. Um, I think that, you know, everybody's in a good spot right now. And we're just, again, focused on growth. Uh, and as long as uh, I think that's the biggest part is I think that everybody sees that year over year, we continue to grow. We continue to, you know, have these unbelievable organic, really, growth years that it just is, uh, they want to continue to see where this spaceship goes. Well, let's check back in a couple of years and see how things go. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks, sir. My thanks again to Travis Barnes. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are several stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, as you know, Duke Realty Corporation was founded in Indianapolis in 1972 and became one of the biggest real estate investment trusts in the Midwest. In June, it entered into a $26 billion merger agreement that will make it a small part of a West Coast-based developer. IBJ's Mickey Shuey documents the last days of Duke Realty. Also in this week's issue, John Russell charts the escalating tensions between emergency room physicians and insurance companies over reimbursement rates. And Dave Lindquist reports on the effort to boost businesses southeast of downtown by creating a new label for the area, Fountain Fletcher. But it's been met with some confusion and criticism since it encompasses neighborhoods that are already well-established and have distinct identities. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at IBJ.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And now it works out to just about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.